I'm going to record now three short podcasts on characters in Herman Woke's um, uh, classic uh, novel from 1985 entitled War and Remembrance. This uh, novel is an absolute gold mine, a very long sort of uh, almost intentionally Tolstoyan uh, 1,300-plus page novel of the uh, World War II uh, from uh, Pearl Harbor to the uh, Nazi collapse and the beginning of the Atomic Age. And uh, it's a great sprawl of an epic novel, and it was made into an absolutely marvelous and riveting Dan Curtis-produced and directed miniseries that I've spoken about before. But there are three characters in it, the metamorphosis of whom, of each, uh, becomes a tremendously um, helpful hook for me to hang on various uh, um, issues and thoughts I've been having in recent times. And uh, Woke has uh, brought together together uh, three uh, different characters in this long uh, novel, which is ultimately a novel of the Holocaust. He has brought together uh, many, many characters, but there are three characters that in particular represent sort of three strands of human growth and development in light of, uh, you might say, religious answers. And I find these three characters, each of them has something important to contribute, something that I believe is necessary and really um, helpful in looking at a human experience in light of God and in light of sort of ultimate things. And uh, so each of these short podcasts will be a kind of meditation on a particular character and one that what that character learns about life and and the meaning of life and uh, the first character is named uh, Duncan Burn Wilk. That's B as in boy, U-R-N-E hyphen Wilk with an E in the end. And he is an English um, titled uh, Lord, aristocrat, who is a vice air marshal who finds himself uh, caught up and specifically attached to what is called the uh, Burma... Uh, China-India uh, theater of war, a kind of forgotten theater uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of Western Europe and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's assault on um, Nazism on the one hand and the Pacific theater on the other, in which the Henry family plays such a big part and is so engrossed. And, however, the uh, writer does uh, a little bit of uh, justice to the uh, bigness of the massive world character of the conflict and the war by bringing in a character uh, who ends up falling in love with a subsidiary character named Pamela Tudsbury, who becomes uh, Victor Henry, the Robert Mitchum character's true love, and whom he marries at the end of the uh, novel War and Remembrance. And she is a young British girl who's a little sort of confused about her own place in the world and her father and her relationship to men in particular, and she is wooed and rather half-heartedly or as a kind of concession to reality when her love affair with Pug Henry looks like it's not going to work out, she agrees to marry a Duncan Byrne Wilk, who is an outstanding, thoughtful, um, massively intellectual, uh, and really quite well-integrated uh, British member of the educated upper classes. He is not a twit. He is not a snob. He is actually a an intellectual and a religious man. And he, um, uh, there are two uh, encounters that the um, reader has with Duncan Byrne Wilk, which are really very interesting. And the first 
This is sort of Woke's um, concession to the Eastern aspect of religion or the Asian aspect of religion, that aspect of religion which is not his own, which is Orthodox Judaism, which he is deeply involved in uh, protecting and uh, expressing and embodying in the great character Aaron Jastrow, about whom I'll speak a little later, uh, and Christianity, which is represented by the uh, very observant uh, mainstream Protestant Christian um, uh, Victor Henry and his family and kind of ends up in a sort of a, a sopping, sentimental, and ultimately hypocritical mess in relationship to his Episcopalian uh, erring wife, Rhoda. But Byrne Wilk, if you look carefully, uh, comes into the narrative and Woke very skillfully and I think impressively doffs his hat to the Eastern um, religious alternative to the dislocation and tragedy of World War II in the character in 1943 at the Tehran Conference where Pamela Tudsbury is witnessing her future fiancé, Byrne Wilk, discussing uh, matters of a philosophical nature with um, various uh, leaders. This is the conference at which Stalin and Winston Churchill and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, talked about um, their common aims in the war. Uh, that's not my point, though. Um, he begins to talk about the Bhagavad Gita. Pug scarcely knew Duncan Byrne Wilk, this is on page 1035 of uh, Warren Remembrance, and the excited warmth with which the man began to expatiate on Hinduism astonished him. The air vice marshal grew flushed, his eyes softened and moistened, and he spoke for a long time about the Bhagavad Gita. Serving in India, he said, had opened his eyes. India was old and full of wisdom. The Hindu view of the world was a total break from Christian and Western ideas and wiser. The Bhagavad Gita offered the only acceptable philosophy he had ever come upon. Now, I'm going to read, it's very brief, what um, Byrne Wilk has ingested from the Bhagavad Gita as he reflects on the uh, catastrophic injustice, horror, and uh, really um, massacre uh, and uh, overwhelming tragic pathos of, of the destructive energy of the Second World War. The warrior hero of the Bhagavad Gita, <coughs> Duncan Byrne Wilk said, disgusted with the senseless killing of war, wanted to throw down his arms before a great battle. The god Krishna persuaded him that as a warrior, his task was to fight, however stupid the cause and however revolting the murders, leaving the sorting out of the whole to heaven. Their long dialogue, said Byrne Wilk, was greater poetry than the Bible. It taught that the material world was not real, that the human mind could not grasp the workings of God, that death and life were twin illusions. A man could only face up to his lot and act according to his nature and his place in life. With a slight face twitch, Pamela conveyed to Pug that all this meant little to her, that Byrne Wilk was off riding a hobby horse. The minister, this is a visiting dignitary, says, I, this is a foreign minister, I know the Bhagavad Gita. Some of our Persian poets write much in that vein. It is too fatalistic. One cannot control all the consequences of one's actions, true, but one must still think about them and make choices. As to the world's not being real, I always humbly ask, compared to what? Compared to God, possibly, said Duncan Byrne Wilk. 
Well, here he uh, is a character who has become disillusioned with his own. You can just tell. You can see, you can see Daily Chapels at uh, at Rugby School or, or or Winchester School here in the in the background. You can see a, an acute disillusionment or the inability of his inherited Church of England faith to somehow withstand the facts on the ground of the China Burma India theater and this very. Um, uh, really um, uh, warm-hearted, brilliant man is reflecting uh, powerfully on what he is observing in the war. And he is um, coming to a very great uh, perspective that um, the Bhagavad Gita, which I have myself read through twice in recent times and also earlier in college long ago, um, was a kind of approach. It basically says, look, uh, before you is a lot of trouble and strife and you have to engage with life in a way that you know is going to end up not only in an action consequence um, uh, problem and uh, some kind of tragic frustration and lost causes and even um, if you actually act decisively to restrain evil there are other consequences that will be set in motion and in the case of war you may be fighting with all the power of the greatest generation against evil but the collateral damage is bound to be or the collateral effects of any kind of action is bound to be fearful the hero and by the way, uh, T.S. Eliot uh, talked um, very uh, intensely or engaged intensely with the Bhagavad Gita in his uh, uh, third of the four quartets, The Dry Self Ages, um, and you can read that yourself. But um, the uh, the notion here is that Krishna uh, is like a Buddhist, you might say, not wishing to engage. He wants to sit down and pull a Jack Kerouac and not engage with what is set before him as he surveys the enemy in a battle that he has had no choice in bringing his whole nation to. And he is in terrible despair about something that cannot in any way, shape, or form go well. And he is then assured by the god Krishna that's it's the god krishna uh, arjuna is the warrior hero uh, krishna in the embodiment or incarnation of the charioteer uh, convinces him that it is still his duty to go forward fair forward arjuna which is the way t.s eliot uh, sees it go forward trusting in the ultimate reality of god and destiny to take care of things and uh, your job is simply to stand and do what falls to you notwithstanding your under- your true picture that it's all a dream and a kind of theater of the absurd that has no uh, conclusion that looks at all good and ultimately it's an unreal um, phantom of dream in any event. Now we uh, all know that the Bhagavad Gita was a kind of uh, um, reaction, uh, what I would call a semi-Pelagian reaction to Buddhism which taught uh, withdrawal and asceticism, not asceticism exactly, but withdrawal in the community of uh, holy indifference uh, and uh, rather than engagement. And the Bhagavad Gita is a kind of later reaction to that, a response to it by saying, yes, you people, you're right about the nature of life as a dream and as an illusion and uh, the tragic, uh, you, you, you must escape the tragic by the, by the eightfold uh, Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, but that does uh, you you're wrong if you think that that means a, a, a life of abnegation and withdrawal. Rather, you must do what is set before you, while fully aware that it is kind of a an enacted drama of of facetious uh, futility. But you must still act now. 
That is a very powerful view. I myself don't accept it. I think it's uh, it's sort of like having your cake and eat it too. How can you see the nonsense set before you and then actively engage it except to some kind of arbitrary decision just to be? There's a little bit of the sort of uh, humane stoicism at the end of uh, By Love Possessed where the hero realizes that he, that he doesn't know and that he's exhausted and he's all alone and all his work has amounted to absolute misfires on every conceivable front and the whole thing is a joke and yet he hears himself raising up his grave voice and saying I'm here now um, this view I don't think is tenable, but it, it is Woke's way of drawing in that insight and including it in his overall um, picture of what might possibly be a response to this terrible blot on human world aspirations and noble hopes that World War II uh, represents and is in the author's mind. Now, actually, very powerfully, um, Duncan Byrne Wilk is brought back in on page uh, 1,213, and uh, I'm going to uh, – this This is where things really uh, heat up. Uh, Pamela has become engaged to this good man, but he has uh, – and they're at her, his country estate called Stoneford. Um, you could almost say maybe he comes from an old Catholic family with a name like that, but I don't think so. He's a, he's a thoughtful and fine example of a, of a uh, non-blocked, really integrated um, and unrepressed uh, English uh, man and uh, a good man. And he has become engaged, but he's brought back malaria and it being British medicine, they can't heal him. He's not, they don't, they can't get him better. And he's dying of malaria that is unable to be treated properly uh, in England. And he's going to die. And he hopes he won't. And he's engaged to Pamela. And Pamela breaks up with him shortly before his death, very sadly for him and uh, to make sure that she is free to marry Pug Henry should Rhoda get the divorce uh, and want the divorce. And there, uh, the last night together in Stoneford, Pamela Tudsbury is listening to her husband talk at what turns out to be very shortly before his death, and he has a kind of distilled wisdom about the future in light of what he has learned religiously and personally, and I want to read it. This is Duncan Byrne Wilkes' um, sort of prophecy of what will happen after the Second World War. Duncan said, Pamela is writing a letter to Pug Henry. Duncan said, it was on our last night together at Stoneford, actually. And he was, of course, melancholy. Let me add, he was melancholy because she had told him she was not going to marry him. He was, of course, melancholy but unfailingly gentle and decent as always. Duncan said that the worst part of this century would not be the war, but the aftermath. He said the young would be left with such utter contempt for their elders after this stupid bath of world carnage that there would be a general collapse of religion, morals, values, and politics. Quote, Hitler will have his Goethe-Demerung, Duncan said. He's pulled it off. The West is done for. The Americans will seem all right for a while, but they'll go too, at last, in a spectacular and probably sudden racial blow-up. She continues in her letter to Pug Henry, I wonder what you'd say to that. 
Duncan was rather down on Americans, for complicated reasons, not wholly excluding you and me. He saw the world going Buddhist in the end, after perhaps another half-century of horror and impoverishment. I could never follow him into the Bhagavad Gita, but he was morbidly persuasive that night. Poor darling. Well, she's a little condescending to this man whom she never really loved in the way she was hung up on Pug, but um, he's a good man, and his words need to be looked at. Now, uh, you have to remember that earlier, or right in there, Aaron Jastro, the Jewish hero, the actual hero, or main fine man of uh, War and Remembrance, has claimed that Hitler will have won, Professor Jester has said, because Hitler set out to destroy not one, but two world religions. Jastrow had written in his journal that uh, that Hitler's decision to destroy um, Judaism would not succeed simply because the Jews themselves were so uh, pertinacious and uh, strong and absolutely um, um, not to be ultimately quenched that he would not succeed in destroying the Jews or Judaism. But, Woke says in the character of Professor Jastrow, he would probably succeed in hobbling and possibly destroying Christianity. Why? Because uh, Christianity could never recover its full credibility insofar as a Christian nation had perpetrated the Holocaust. Now, whether you agree with that or not or see anything to it, I do think there's a lot to that. I really do. When I look at the overall profile and sinking in the fortunes of Christianity, at least as a public phenomenon or as a national phenomenon or as a cultural phenomenon, there are many things you can say about that, needless to say. But I think the, the, the credibility problem that Christianity um, had as a result of its, uh, its somehow uh, allowing itself to in some form coexist with the um, malice, hatred, and the anti-Semitism that overtook Europe in the Holocaust uh, is a very significant thing and probably is not fully played out. I do know this, that, the, that movements like the, uh, second, the third quest for the historical Jesus, the Jesus seminar, and most importantly, the uh, so-called new perspective on Paul and the post-Holocaust understanding of early Christianity and Paulinism and Jesus. This has all been uh, a kind of loss of nerve, you might say, in terms of the classic Orthodox uh, perspective on Christology and the cross and soteriology. Probably these movements within the Christian church, a kind of shooting oneself in the foot, to put it uh, in, in a kind of movement sense, probably do stem, if I read the uh, the documents correctly, more than anything else from a, a shattering of, of confidence that occurred by virtue of some understood Christian complicity or at least apathy, which I think is the right word in relation to the Holocaust. Now, that having been said... We can go back to Burn Wilk, and this is a short uh, Holocaust. Uh, Holocaust. <laughs> I hope it's not a Holocaust. It's a. It's a. Uh, my wife goes to a. Uh, Mary goes to a, uh, a Pilates class that has yoga in it, and it's called uh, Yoga Lattes, a mixture of the word. Uh, um, of the two words, uh, Pilates and yoga. I of course call it Piloga, um, but. Uh, 
It's not a podcast. This is a podcast, I hope. And um, he, uh, Duncan Byrne Wilk on page 1213 says something like uh, Jastrow says in a more specific way. Uh, Duncan Byrne Wilk said that the young would be left with utter contempt for their elders and that there would be a general collapse of religion, morals, values, and politics. I think we see that in Europe after the Second World War. I do think we see a, a very rapid movement that I think actually occurred as a result of the First World War initially and a tremendous disillusionment with the role and apathy of the church in connection with the uh, the Christian church in connection with World War One in England. I think we see tremendous credibility problem in Christianity in Europe and Germany and in England, and it had already happened really in uh, France and certainly in Spain. Let's look at read, look at uh, Barcelona by Witt Stillman, and you'll see what, what the follow-up of a movement like uh, Franco becomes. A general collapse of religion, morals, and values. Uh, Hitler will have his Goethe-Demmering, Duncan said. He's pulled it off. And then he says, the Americans will seem all right for a while, but they'll go too at last. Well, um, I don't know exactly what, uh, what we words or uh, experiences we might uh, uh, put into that prophecy, but um, uh, we certainly uh, are uh, facing, we are cleaning up, our being the great hope of the world, our commercial success, our money, our malls, the malls that uh, are within five minutes of where I'm sitting here and which was once a beautiful uh, harvested area of orange groves and lakes and palm trees, now uh, one massive mall for all the newcomers who uh, desperately uh, enjoy, a, wish to have a standard of living that they think is the dream of this country. Um, it is. Uh, you would think about that in light of what uh, uh, Duncan Byrne Wilk says. And finally, he says, uh, perhaps another half century of horror and impoverishment, what Herr Maltmann calls the Unterseite, the underside of the great prosperity of parts of the world. The underside is the massive desire of the rest of the world to have it and to get it, and to gain it, and to move towards it. And most interestingly, when Byrne Wilk ruminates, quote, he saw the world going Buddhist in the end. In other words, ultimately, there's going to be a turning to a uh, religious view for those who are religious, and everyone is, that can kind of withstand the facts. Remember what Kerouac said so um, tersely in the Dharma Bombs. He told uh, uh, Gary Schneider, or Jaffe Ryder, as he is in the book, he told Gary Snyder, look, I'm not all interested in the uh, trappings of the religion of Buddhism. I could care less about the different cultural flavorings and this kind versus that kind. I'm not interested in putting on a saffron robe. I am, however, interested in the two of the noble truths that life is suffering. And uh, suffering is based on desire and attachment. And possibly, he said, I'm interested in the third, that there is a way uh, out of desire and attachment. Uh, he said, I'm only interested in it because uh, I'm a disillusioned man in light of my love life, in light of everything that I see, in light of uh, the life being, as he says in an article somewhere that I think he wrote for Holiday Magazine or Cosmopolitan, but it was actually Holiday. He said, um, life uh, 
is uh, a crock, and therefore I want to understand how to live in the light of disillusionment. And so um, Byrne Wilk and the movement in the 50s uh, that the beat poets were in their better moments were seeking to aspire to, and the tremendous credibility problem that the uh, Western religion par excellence, which is uh, is Christianity historically, uh, this is uh, seen as an option to that, uh, a turning uh, towards uh, uh, detachment and uh, a kind of um, holy indifference and uh, a kind of tradition of wisdom and knowledge uh, rather than conflict and um, uh, a kind of wrestling match between the human race and God that ultimately um, is played out most powerfully on the field of forgiveness and Christian mercy, which is a tremendously significant theme for me and I hope for, for, for still for the world, but has been so often scotched and walked over and um, um, really rendered... Um, inactive by the other uh, commitments of the Christian institutions which have uh, offered such a credibility problem which um, this uh, book uh, is uh, dealing with. Although we have in uh, Victor Pug Henry a, um, a very credible, thoughtful, and not uh, fanatical and humble uh, Christian man of prayer in the Bible. So Woke is not going to dismiss the Christian option. Well, I leave this short podcast with you, a kind of um, looking at a character that is a tertiary character, Lord Duncan Byrne Wilk of Stoneford House, England, or Stoneford Abbey. And I leave uh, that uh, very uh, touching uh, despairing, terminally ill with malaria um, man as he reflects on what he has seen in the catastrophe of the Second World War at the end of 1944. Now, uh, in the next um, podcast, uh, I will look at the Rhodes Scholar uh, Princeton graduate Leslie Sloat and the effect and synthesis and finally action that his disillusionment before his impotence in getting anyone to believe what he knows concerning the uh, massacre of European Jewry and his shock at the indifference and even stonewalling that he encounters in the Department of State in Washington and all over. We're going to look at Leslie Sloat's very unusual final sort of coming to terms with his inability to do anything as he sees a train um, coming down the pike, coming down the track, uh, destroying all in um, its path, including uh, someone whom he loves very deeply in his heart. Leslie Sloat will be episode 35. Thank you so much, and God bless. <laughs>